It's very good to see you all here coming to end 2014 and presumably most of you or all of you are going to stay to begin 2015 in a conscious way and we've been very um, fortunate with the weather this year. Those of you who have been coming for a while we know that it's not always like this on New Year's Eve. Sometimes it's uh, seriously inclement and even difficult to get here. So, so far it's been uh, very mild. Well, mostly mild. We have had a little bit of cold weather. And um, a few weeks ago when, when the, the gas ran out, um, it did send some ripples through the community. What, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, fortunately... The um, the uh, people who deliver the gas turned up eventually and and uh, topped up the tank and so now we we have the the gas and the firewood hopefully to uh, <clears throat> to last us through the winter. When it happened that the gas ran out and uh, it's not supposed to be that way. There is a contract with the suppliers who they have an obligation to check up on our tank and make sure that that doesn't happen and and then uh, the monastery secretary gently politely inquired you know what's going on and they said oh well there'd been some emergency and and uh, the tanker got diverted somewhere else and uh, we didn't uh, rebook you and it happened like that okay right so it happens and when things like that happen, I do sometimes wonder that uh, how much of it is they're thinking, well, you know, those peace-loving Buddhists, they're not going to make a problem, so we'll just go to somebody who is going to make a problem and um, not worry about those, those Buddhists and um, see if we can get away with it. That thought does occur to me sometimes. And, and I was... Um, I was speaking to the abbot of our local Zen monastery over in Hexham, and he was telling me how they've been dealing with a builder or a set of builders who've been giving them the runaround. They hadn't done their job properly and, and uh, figured they could get away with it because those peace-loving Buddhists are not going to make anything out of it. And So uh, anyway, I got to thinking about this the other day, and, and the thought that occurred to me was... Well, isn't that nice? Isn't that a pleasant thing to be somebody who people feel is going to just be peaceful? You know, we're the Buddhists. Those Buddhists are nice, peaceful people. And I thought, well, that's, that's a nice perception to have. I'm, I'm happy if that's what people think of me. I think Buddhism is succeeding in its translation into the West if that's what people think of us. And, and having having a sense of 
how how one views or how one perceives that circumstance. You know, I, you know, I'm quite capable, I assure you, of you know going the other direction and and feeling well. You know, what about my rights and and all about you know all that stuff, but. That wasn't dominant. I thought, well, actually, no, I'm quite pleased about that, that people think we're not going to retaliate, we're not going to make a problem out of things. And noticing that, what came to my mind was how important it is, the kind of views that we hold, the way we view our experience of life. If you view yourself as a hard-done-by victim who's not, getting their rights and not loved and not respected and all that, well, that, that has a big effect on how we engage life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, this is a, this is a, a mundane example of, of how the views we hold affect our participation in life, but it does relate to, I think, what's at the very core of the Buddha's teachings, you know, whether the beginning, beginning of the Eightfold Path, you know, right view, right understanding. This is, the Buddha highlighted this. This is something that we need to cultivate. I emphasize this is not just the belief system. Of course, we all know that. The Buddha didn't just hold up a, a concept about reality and then ask us to believe in it and bow down to it and so on, but to cultivate this view on life, this view on reality. And so it occurs to me that this, um, this particularly tonight, as we we're preparing ourselves to begin a new year, how relevant it is that we inspect the views that we hold, the assumptions we have about reality, you know, not just to coast along. You know, we, if we uh, just coast along, well, then... We are, in effect, being defined by the environment, by the advertisements, by the culture in which we live, which, as we all know, it's very, these days are very materialistic. Views, the opinions, the feelings, the ideas we have about life tend to be defined by, very much by the way things appear to be, by the material dimension rather than the essence of the thing rather than the spirit it's the form that that dominates and and so we don't want to do that we don't want to be victims to the conditioning of the world we live in so what do we do about it well i would suggest what we do about it is take time to inspect the views that we hold about reality about experience the uh the Full moon is coming up next Sunday and I was spending time today preparing my Dhammapada reflection to email out to people and the verse that I, I, I settled on was the second verse, the Dhammapada. And we'll go back to the very beginning, verse 1 and verse 2. And so most of us, I expect, will be aware of these teachings, the, the very well-known collection of teachings, the Dhammapada, that... that generally acknowledged as very direct teachings from when the Buddha was around. And, and the very first and second verses go to, point to, just this. You know, what kind of view do we hold? 
what are our fundamental basic assumptions about reality. And so, verse 1, it says, all states of being are determined by the heart. All states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows in the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will follow if we act out of an impure heart. Now that's, of course, an image that you know, not everybody's walking behind ox carts these days, but you, know, you can figure what the Buddha was pointing to and find the equivalent. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows in the hoof print of the animal that draws it, so suffering will follow if we act out of an impure heart. And then verse 2, all states of being are determined by the heart. It is the heart that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being or so happiness will follow if we act out of a pure heart. As surely as our, as our shadow never leaves us, happiness or well-being will follow if we act and speak out of a pure heart. So, considering, again, considering this, uh, the situation we're now beginning the new year and and if it is the case, as I'm sure as uh, disciples of the Buddha, we would all accept that the view, the basic view we hold is, is profoundly important. I think this is worth considering. Not, not just worth believing in. Yeah. We can all hear this. We all know it's the heart that matters. Yeah. But the Buddha didn't want us just to believe it. He wanted us to cultivate it, cultivate an awareness of this dimension. Because this is what makes a difference. This is where the power lies. See, what, what, what is it that makes a difference in the world? Where does the power lie? The power, the Buddha wanted us to consider, is in the heart. It's, yes, of course, you know, what we have to eat, you know, that's important. What we have to drink is important. Uh, our exercise routine, you know, these things are, are relevant. Yeah. But really they're relevant because they affect the state of our consciousness, the state of our heart, the state of our mind, what we eat and what we drink. They're not the ultimate things. They're relevant. I was reading an article this morning or yesterday pointing out about how good coffee is for you. I was quite pleased to read that. that It said that fruit juice is, is not good for you at all, that coffee is what's good for you. That you know, the, <laughs> apparently eating fruit is all right if it's still got the skin on and the I don't know pulp or whatever. But uh, once you've extracted the juice, it's basically. I think they said that um, you've probably seen this already. That the, these these um, these fruit smoothies they've got more sugar in them than a can of cola apparently. And but coffee is and caffeine apparently it it stays off dementia apparently. So. I was pleased to read that. I don't know, maybe the coffee people did the research or something. And, and of course, they're not talking about all the sugar and other things you might put in the coffee. And I actually, I asked my acupuncturist about this, and he said, well, so long as the coffee beans come from a high altitude, you've got to have the right kind of coffee beans. And, and we do. A lot of people uh, put a lot of effort into getting their diet right, yeah. paying attention to the diet, paying attention to the exercise routine, 
paying attention to how many followers you have on your Twitter account. I don't know if anybody here has a Twitter account, but a lot of people do. And a lot of energy goes into these things. What the Buddha wanted us to do was put energy into inspecting the underlying views that we have, because as far as he was concerned, this is where the power lies in the views that we hold about reality. And so all the teachings, basically, I think it's fair enough to say that all the teachings the Buddha gave throughout his entire life from the time of his enlightenment was pointing people to addressing this matter. You know, get the view right. And if the fundamental view is right, well, then there's the chance that all the other factors of the Eightfold Path will fall into place. But if the fundamental view is not right, then these other factors can't and won't fall into place. So. But again, to say that uh, he didn't want us just to believe in what he said about right view, he wanted us to cultivate it. And, and so um, I'm sure you're all aware of how much uh, in Buddhism the teachings talk about dukkha, you know, the Four Noble Truths and... And I was, uh, I was listening to a, a talk by a teacher from a different tradition who was, was criticising us Theravadan Buddhists because of our emphasis on dukkha. Those Theravadans always going on about dukkha. And, and fair enough, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a difficult word, dukkha, when you translate it as suffering and you know, you're always going on about suffering and you know, all conditions of suffering. It's true, the Buddha did say, Sabe Sankara Dukkha. He did say that. All conditions are Dukkha. But, you know, he didn't want us just to believe it. He didn't want us just to read that like a manual. I mean, what's the point of reading a manual if you don't engage the instrument? You know, I mean, you've you got a, a nice new MacBook Air. or You read the manual, but you don't actually open the laptop. I mean, that's really sad, isn't it? The manual has got a place as does the theory of right view have a place. The Buddha wanted us to educate our hearts and minds. You know, we've got to get this in line in the right way. You know, so we're in touch with where the power lies so we can effect change. We can effect wholesome change in our own lives, in the inner world and in the outer world. <laughs> as far as the Buddha was concerned, this is what really makes the difference. And if the heart, if consciousness is polluted with me and my way, with greed, aversion and delusion, then there's no way that the activity of body and speech that follows from that is going to produce harmony and well-being. No matter how, what you have for breakfast or what quality coffee you have or fruit smoothie or whatever else, you know, or how many Twitter followers or exercise routine, if the consciousness is polluted with greed, aversion and delusion, if it's distorted, it's like if your eyesight is out, you're going to fall over, you're going to bang into things, knock things over. It doesn't make you bad. You know, we're not talking about people being bad, we're just talking about the consequence of consciousness being polluted. Conversely, of course, the, the good news, and what the Buddha and the great enlightened beings have realized is that when consciousness is purified from the pollutions of greed, aversion and delusion, all conceit, all ignorance is gone, if that's the case, then speech and action that follows out of that consciousness will produce harmony and well-being for oneself and for others. So, so the emphasis was not just in getting the theory right, 
uh, not just taking a cursory glance at the teachings like this this other teacher I referred to you who was teasing us Theravadan Buddhists for our emphasis on dukkha but I'm cultivating you know what, what is the spirit behind this what is this word what did the Buddha really mean when he said sabe sankara dukkati there's a very well known stanza four line stanza it starts with this, Sabe Sankara Dukati, Yadhapanyaya Pasati, Atani Bindati Dukai, Esamago Visudhiya. The last line being, this is the path of purification. This is this is how to purify the heart from the pollutions. Sabe Sankara Dukati, Yadhapanyaya Pasati. If you see this truth with insight, Atani Bindati Dukai, which means that disillusionment sets in. Disillusionment sets in with regards to all those habits of clinging. Yeah. Uh, this is the path of purification. We want to purify the heart. If we want to really make a difference, we go back and see the fundamental assumptions we have about reality, the basic underlying views. How do we do that? How do we purify that, free the heart from clinging? We don't just speculate about dukkha. We look into it and investigate it and see what we can actually do about it. This word... This word dukkha, I sometimes think about it, it's like, it's like talking about, you know, that, that wood-burning stove in the reception room. It's black, right? It's a black thing. But you say it's hot. Now, saying it's hot is not a value judgment of that wood-burning stove, but it's a really important word, really important concept, really important. You know, when you tell somebody that's hot, that means... You're careful. You're careful about how close you get to it. You don't touch it. You don't. I was actually watching the Anagarika this morning, putting some wood on the fire, and he did it without the glove. He cut a little burn on his hand. You know, he grabbed the handle. Actually, he did it very quickly, and he got away with it. But if you grab that handle, the handle doesn't look hot. It really doesn't look hot. Looking at that handle of that wood-burning stove, it doesn't look hot. And if you're uninformed, you could grab it and then you could hurt yourself. And so the Buddha's insight was that since all conditions on all levels of all existence are in a state of change, that if you cling to anything at all, you create this experience of dukkha. And so, the, so there is nothing, there is no condition whatsoever, physical or mental emotional, psychological, relational, or anything else, that if we cling to it, that it's going to bring us satisfaction, it's going to bring us happiness, it's going to give us what we're looking for. So this is not uh, when the Buddha said, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, you didn't say that life is miserable, or that it's bad. It's not, it's not a value judgment. It's just saying be very careful about how you relate to conditions, because if you relate in an uninformed way, if your fundamental view does not accord with reality, then your experience is going to be disappointment, suffering. So to emphasize that uh, the importance of, yes, in the beginning, having a, an accurate, clear, conceptual understanding of what right view is about, what the Buddha was pointing to, because that leads to Mental ease, that's important. You say, you know, why am I suffering? Well, if we don't have an answer to that question, then the mind's just going to go round and round and round. Here we are, New Year's Eve, and, and 
at midnight, there's going to be an invitation to go through this ritual together of forgiveness and renewal. And we, we want to skillfully end the year with a clean mind and heart and not carry resentment and say, but the fact is, back in July, that person did that to me and I just can't let go of this feeling of resentment towards them. Well, is that true, that I can't let go? You know, this basic teaching that the Buddha gave us asked us to investigate these assumptions, not just believe in the way things appear to be, and to investigate this idea that I can't let go of that resentment that I feel, that hurt that I've been carrying with me for the last six months. Yeah. Now, if we cultivate the right view, first we have the understanding and we think about it and say, well, it's like that. Actually, the memory is one thing. The memory of what happened, that's one thing. But if we start to look into it, we see, well, actually, that memory is quite neutral. The memory is not painful. It's the feeling that's painful. The feeling is painful. The feeling of resenting the memory. Now, this is not something that's going to necessarily occur to us immediately. But if we start to cultivate and investigate according with the basic fundamental right view that the Buddha was asking us to consider, then we start to see this for ourselves. We say, actually, you can let go of that resentment. Resentment is a choice. The memory is not a choice. Memory, well, as you get older, they do tend to become less accessible. But... But probably the painful ones will stay around. You know, probably those awful things that happen to us will stay around. And so if you're not skillful, if you're not educated, you think, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life because of that thing that happened to me six months ago or six years ago or, in my case, 60 years ago. Not that I can remember what happened when I was three but, or four. Things did happen. My brother did such and such to me. And you can spend 60 years dwelling on that. And if you've got a fundamental assumption that you're a victim, that's really unfortunate. What the Buddha wanted us to understand was we're not victims. Investing that memory with ill will is a choice. We don't have to do that. And so forgiveness is possible. Letting go of the memory, maybe that's not possible. But letting go of that reaction by investing the memory with ill will, that is possible. Same with positive mind states, you know, desire. We have have a three-month winter retreat ahead of us coming up, and those of us in the monastery are very fortunate that um, we have this time ahead of us, and and so one could have the desire, I have the desire, well, I'm, you know, getting on, I don't want to die ignorant and stupid, so this three-month retreat, you know, maybe I want to become an arahant. And so I want to rid my heart and mind from all ignorance and conceit and greed, aversion, and delusion, everything else. And that's not a bad desire, is it? It's a wholesome desire. But how do we relate to it? How do we relate to that desire? That's what's important. How do we relate to that pain, that hurt? How do we relate to these things? Do we habitually cling and try and find... What is it we're looking for? What is it we're looking for in our action of clinging? 
This is not this is not something that just by believing in the Four Noble Truths or the Buddha's teachings on all conditions of dukkha, just believing in those things that's not going to answer the question. What is it we're looking for to our habit of clinging? Our teacher Ajahn Chah is well known for for discouraging his monks from reading. In some quarters he's got a very bad reputation. You know, because the scholars, that is, they they think that he was anti-reading. Ajahn Chah was very well educated and I assure you he knew how to read and he'd read a lot. But what he also became aware of, especially when the Westerners started turning up in his monastery, was how utterly lost so many of us were in the concept of the concepts of Buddhism. We had read so many books about it, he said, that we thought we understood it. You have this thing of saying you know so much you don't know anything. Of course, what we know about things, but that doesn't mean that we know them. And so to really know what the Buddha was talking about when he said the right view, yes, it starts with a, a mental clarity which leads to ease of mind. Oh, well, that's, that's why I suffer over that thing that happened in July because I'm still clinging to it and investing this resentment in it. Now we've got a conceptual understanding. And that's very important to have that conceptual understanding in the beginning because that then leads us to letting go and that then leads us to gratitude and that then leads us to a generous participation in life. So this uh, encouragement to to contemplate uh, what the Buddha was asking us to do when he offered this teaching on the on a fundamental right view, again, to emphasize it's not just something to believe in, it's going to save us because we cling to it. It's not about clinging. You know, reading books, it gets to a point where it's time to stop reading books and even to stop thinking. You know, often the first port of call when there's a problem is what? When we've got a problem, what's the first port of call? What do we start doing? We think about it. And we feel so virtuous in doing that. Now that's not the case for everybody on the planet. Not everybody's being conditioned the way we're conditioned. We do this, again, not because we're stupid or bad or anything. We do this because we're being conditioned to do this. This is the way our education took us. Well, there is, there are other alternatives. There's also the possibility of learning to not think. Not to demonize thinking. It's like, it's like will. In the beginning, we want to do anything. We usually turn to willpower. We will it. We intend it. We're going to do it. And the same with the spiritual life. You come across, for instance, you come across the Buddha's teaching and say, I'm going to go on a retreat, and you go on a retreat, and you do the meditation. You do this buddha, buddha, or this breathing in, breathing out, or you do the listening to the sound of silence or you do whatever else it is we do. And that's right in the beginning. That's appropriate to do things with willpower. That's what we're good at. That's, that's, and certainly that's what the deluded personality, that's all it can do actually is do things. But if that's what we keep doing, then it keeps us very busy and restless and we're never going to get past a certain point. However, if we really take this investigation to heart and not we're not just 
holding on to it as a concept, as an image of how we should be. We're not just clinging to the concept of all conditions of dukkha or Four Noble Truths or the Paticca Summa part of these other uh, fundamental, foundational concepts that we have in Buddhism. And we're actually applying ourselves and investigating. Then hopefully what happens is we become tired of thinking, tired of willful manipulation of conditions. Yadha panyaya pasati atta nibindati dukkai become tired. Nibindati is a it's an Pali word which means becoming tired of things, dispassionate, weary. It's just it's like what that again? You know, clinging again, trying to figure it out again, trying to do my meditation again. If we're investigating as we go along, little by little, there's a kind of a, there's a kind of a wholesome boredom. I mean, there's negative boredom, which is a kind of unacknowledged resentment. But this, this dispassion, this disinterest, is more like what happens when you see, like if you've got a wound and it gets itchy and you scratch it, oh, infect it again. When am I going to learn? The lack of resolution, hopefully, eventually becomes boring. You know, stop this hesitation, this holding back, and just surrender. And surrender also is characterized by trust. And what in, in Pali is called sadha. Now, and trust is a very different way of relating to experience. In the beginning, yes, we're doing and we use will and, and, and our effort hopefully eventually takes us to a point where we experience a shift in our perspective on things and we see it's not the way things appear to be. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the way it appears to be. And when you see that for yourself, then automatically letting go happens. It's not like you've got to let go. It's not like you've got to keep telling yourself to let go. It's like letting go has already happened by the time you realize it. And from that point onwards, will is not appropriate. Doing is something, of course, one can still engage. But it's like when you're driving a car. You know, in the beginning, you you need a surge of energy to overcome the inertia of being stationary. You need that surge of energy. But then once you're cruising, you don't need that surge anymore. Well, this is a helpful understanding with regards to practice. In the beginning, yes, will, yes, study, yes, doing, but not to become addicted to that mode of operating. I think a lot of people do become addicted to it. They become locked into it because that's basically the characteristic of the deluded personality. That's what most of the world is all about. There's a goal I wanted. I'm going to do what I need to do with my willpower to get it. Well, if we're operating with trust, with sadha, with confidence, then it's a very different mode of operating. And you say, well, what do we trust in? Well, that's... I don't think it's necessarily something that we need to be clear about. I mean, what part of the characteristic of trust is we don't know. You know that's that we relate to the great mystery of life. 
open-hearted, open-minded relationship with the mystery of life is very different from having a clear concept that is going to define how we go about getting what we want out of life. But I do think it's the natural evolution of a path of cultivation of practice. Having a concept inspires us and we do the investigation, but hopefully it will take us to a point where our practice is characterised by trust and the compassion, the wisdom that we're looking for, maybe these are not things that in fact we have to attain. The concept of wisdom, the concept of compassion can certainly inspire us in the beginning and if you hear beings who seem like they know what they're talking about, talking about these things, then yes, we can be inspired by the teachings of wisdom and compassion. But if our materialistic attitude towards spiritual life means all we do is cling to that concept and try and attain it, then I would suggest that we're just going to keep feeling frustrated and disappointed and even feeling powerless. So if that happens, if we go back to the Buddha's teachings on right view and see that what the Buddha was talking about, well-being is determined. It says, just as our shadow will never leave us, certainly well-being follows when we act and speak out of a pure heart. So how do we purify the heart? What is purifying the heart? Purifying the heart is letting go of clinging. All clinging, even clinging to the concepts we have about the spiritual path. Now, having said that, the iconoclasts start clinging to the concept that there's nothing to cling to. There's no tradition and there's no path and there's nothing to do and and they do away with rituals and, and that's understandable. I mean, not really. We have people pass through the monastery who will, you know tell me about how we've got it all wrong because we're stuck in tradition and lineage and rituals and symbols and all these things and well whether somebody's stuck on these things or whether they're using them or not is not always obvious from the outside it could well be that a mindful feeling appreciation of tradition is a source of energy it might just be that a respectful relationship with tradition is energizing. A materialistic consciousness just sees the way things appear to be. But if we can hopefully disengage from that, let go of that and come back into a not thinking, feeling, silent, considerate investigation of these things, then we'll see what the spirit is behind them and not just the form. So as we approach New Year 2015, there's going to be, I'm sure for all of us, endless opportunities to get it wrong, (laughs) to cling, to make ourselves suffer, 
and unfortunately, possibly even make other people suffer. But instead of defaulting to thinking about it, instead of defaulting to judging ourselves for not meeting the ideal that we might have about how we should be, we could also stop and consider the fundamental views, the fundamental understanding that the Buddha encouraged us to have with regards to the path. Clinging, all clinging, is going to increase the suffering. Clinging to judgments about how we should be is not it. Clinging to judgments about how other people should be is not it. It's so easy to get off on well, depending on what sort of character you are, whether you get off on judging yourself about being you know, not good enough or being rotten with guilt or being a failure or whatever, or whether you get off on judging other people. Yeah. Probably to some degree most of us do a bit of both. Yeah. You can get energy from that. But is that pure energy? Is that wholesome energy? Is that energy that leads to well-being? Is getting off on judging ourselves and judging others, is it an obligation if we get quiet and consider it, and we say, well, it's not an obligation. You can watch judging. You can listen to judging. You know, judging begins and ends. The mind is not always judging. Sometimes the mind is silent. In fact, there's always silent on one dimension. There's always silence. It's like the space. If there's no space here, then we couldn't come into it. But because there's space here, we can come into it, we can go out of it. All sorts of things can come into the space and go out of it. There's always the space of awareness. There's always the space of knowing. If we find out what it takes to fall back into that awareness, that knowing, that, that mindfulness and wise reflection, if we find whatever effort it takes to fall back into that and then see resentments, judgments, sadness, gladness. They all have their place. To try and get rid of suffering is not it. But to change our relationship to suffering is possible. And it's enhanced. There's a better chance if we establish our hearts and minds with this right view as the Buddha suggested. And I'm not saying we should do it. I'm saying this is worth doing. This is worth investigating. What's most worthwhile is investigating the fundamental views that we hold and see. Do they effectively lead us towards letting go or do they increase the clinging? And, and then when we do get it wrong, we just begin again. And this is a resolution that's worth making. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Um, may I, um, I, uh...